0: typically in reverse order, right? You'll get the deal first, then you say, hold on, let me go back here, but what what is the market? What is the, who's the operator, whatever, and does this fit my own parameters? And so it's kind of a a back and forth between those three things, but I think um, market first, then the operator, then the deal.
1: You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Bronson, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Matt, excited to be here, man. Excited talking about ice cream and real estate, two things that are wonderful things. When you combine them, it's even better. <laughs> Near and dear to my
1: heart, you are a man prepared for this show. So right. you know we like to start with the difficult questions. What is your favorite yeah. ice cream?
0: Well, I was, I was thinking I should show up with like a giant bowl of like 10 scoops of ice cream and just be eating the whole, let's go, let hold a sec, I got to eat, um, you know, just gain weight while I'm on the show. Um, I, my favorite is probably mint chocolate chip. I like mint chocolate chip. I also like vanilla,
1: but I think mint chocolate chip would win all day. So our listeners know that's the answer I give to that question out of respect for my father. Cause when I was a child, my father said, always get mint chocolate chip because no one likes mint chocolate chip. So no one will ask you for a scoop of your ice cream. <laughs> you are proving that theory true. wrong, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess I'm the one. So I would ask for <laughs> a scoop of your ice cream then. <laughs> I would gladly give it to you. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today?
0: Um, well, you know, it's funny. I, I work with investors. I've had, like I mentioned, over 1,500 one-on-one phone calls with investors. We've raised almost $40 million for different real estate and alternative asset deals, such as ATM machine funds and car washes and oil and gas. And I do different passive investing beyond that as well. Uh, I used to be a medical uh, device sales guy, so I did that. I'd sell uh, equipment to uh, physicians in surgery, and it was interesting. I was getting paid well. There's just one problem. I just had to go into, you know, go in and help these guys all the time. I didn't have freedom over my time. So I think a lot of people think of financial freedom meaning, oh, I just have more than enough money. But really. When it comes down to it, for me it really meant time freedom right that i can have time to travel i have time to write a book and i have time to do the things spend time with the family things that i want to do or the causes i believe in and so for me <clears throat> that's been something that i've been really focused on but uh you know what i really do is we we try to find um passive investment opportunities that are attractive for investors, um, that have certain parameters that really will, either tax benefits or really high upside or steady cash flow, that will help people to get to their financial goals. So that's that's what I'm passionate about, it's really what we do, and I spend almost all my time doing.
1: Awesome, well a lot in there. So before we get to all that though, tell our listeners, where'd your real estate journey begin?
0: Yeah, so I I think, um, Like a lot of people, like, you know, I think everybody kind of knows, you know, okay, real estate is a good thing. Like I should do real estate because wealthy people we know have done real estate. And so I thought, oh, I'll do real estate, and i'll I'll buy a house. And so I bought a house, um ended up um, you know living there for a while, and then keeping it as a rental from another state, ended up acquiring a, a small multi or small single family portfolio. And I, my goal was to get to thirty houses. Um these are mostly in the Cleveland area. And um, you know if you know if you're in inner city or kind of suburbs of Cleveland, typically, uh, it's a, it's a tough, it's a rougher tenant base, a little tougher with the city. It's, it's a, you know, the numbers look great on paper, but by the time you get kind of actually to, to start generating cash flow, you realize there's less than you thought or maybe none. And so, um, had some issues with that. And I have a cousin actually that, um, I came in and in, in touch with that I hadn't seen in years. And he said, you know, this single family thing sounds like a lot of work. Why don't you do multifamily apartments? And I thought, well, you know, he did apartments and I thought, well, that, I, t- I said, that'd be great, but I just don't have the money. And he said, well, you can raise the money. So he taught me about this thing called syndication, which is basically raising money from individual investors or people investing passively to go after bigger deals. So fast forward, you know, four or five years raised, like I said, almost 40 million and uh, quit my great corporate job. A couple of years ago, I've had no regrets. And, uh, it's been great. So I think I've had five international trips this year that my book coming out shortly and just really trying to create as much value as I can and create the life that I want as well.
1: You said, uh, Cleveland, is that Cleveland, Ohio or Cleveland, California? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I live in, I live in LA,
0: but yeah, it's out of state investing and, um, which I'm okay with out of state investing. It just means you have to have a really good team. And the challenge with single family. I think a lot of people think, oh, I've got to start with single family, do that for 10, 20 years. And then I can go to multifamily, but I think it's just a myth. I think you should in general, try to go to bigger deals because they tend to be more solid. They're usually the management is better and it's actually easier to raise money or do bigger deals as a, as a
1: partner. So I think it's, there's a lot of positives to it for sure. I would agree. Were those um, deals in Cleveland, were they like the turnkey that you see or how did you end up in Cleveland? Yeah, so
0: I, I actually found a turnkey person and they were just talking about stuff that they had around the country. They would do stuff in different markets in Phoenix and where, you know, it was like, okay, seven to 12% return projected in Phoenix and, you know, 10% Kansas City or 12%, whatever. And then There was like Cleveland 17 to 19% or something. I was like, <laughs> what in the world? Like, what is that? You know? So I was like, let me, let me look at that. And so I, <clears throat> I just started looking into it and realized, like, there's a lot of houses there. I was like, do I really need to, you know, if you're buying turnkey, you're basically buying top retail usually, right? Usually you're buying something fully rehabbed. Or I was like, you know, I'm okay getting involved a bit. So we bought several houses and they were between, you know, 15 and 30,000 each. I mean, this was at a pretty good time wow. to buy. And then, you know, we'd put sometimes, you know, five, 10 into, into them and get them rented for a 1000 bucks a month or 900 bucks a month. And you know, they did well, but just again the, the type of tenant you had there. It's just it's hard because they're not um, usually the tenant quality isn't as good. The numbers just don't scale. And that's why some of the stuff is here if you're doing a $30,000 house and you're having issues with it, it's just it's just a lot of work for not a lot of return versus you're doing a $300,000 house or a $30 million multifamily deal, right? Like it's it's really not that much different, except you do a lot more work on the smaller stuff versus having teams of people that can help with the larger stuff.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I heard someone early on in my investment journey say like, when you go to buy a water heater, there's not a separate section in home Depot for, Oh, your house is below $30,000. You get this discount on a water heater. A water heater is expensive regardless of where you spend the money. Uh, so you might as well own quality assets at a higher price point than uh, some of the lowering stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive. I think we, a lot of us, you know, we know, uh, you know we make we make so many decisions just based on subconscious things. So it's like we think about real estate. What comes to mind typically is like, oh, well, I've lived in a house, as most people have. Well, maybe I should buy a house. And if I have a house, then maybe I could rent this out and go get another house, whatever. And it's, it's an easy, like, understanding of how people get there but that's really not how people usually become financially free unless they have like 20 or 30 years. I know people have been doing it for like 20, 30 years, but it really can turn into another job if you don't do it right. And that's why I'm really interested in growing wealth without taking up more of your time. And that's where Warren Buffett talks about, you know, if you don't learn how to make money while you sleep, well, you're working until you die. And so there's this idea of passive investing. A lot of people think it's like Owning an online business, or it's uh, actively trading stocks, or it's having a single family portfolio that you manage. I'm like, that, none of that's passive, right? Passive is if you can't 10x what you're currently doing, meaning deploying 10 times the amount of capital, you're not passively investing. So if I have three houses, then could I go to 30 houses? without, you know, and actually manage that effectively, there's probably no, it probably become your full time job, right? So, um, so I think it's important to evaluate. That's the nice thing about syndicated deals or deals that are private placements that are that are more passive, there's nothing fully passive, because nobody cares about your money the way you do. But I think being able to um, you know, see a deal, look at it, analyze it, analyze the team, and do your work on the front end, and then choose to invest, and then realize, you know, I'm not managing this at all. Like it's someone else is managing it. I'm maybe looking at the statements, I'm getting the cash flow, and that's a great way to really get that mailbox money.
1: Uh, do you still own those homes in Cleveland? Nope, I
0: sold them uh, a couple of year few years ago. So I rolled it into multifamily, larger stuff, and so yeah. Got I, it. I decided, you know, it was just, you know, getting, it's it's just kind of the brain damage of it, right? You get, oh, this thing <laughs> happened, the tenant didn't pay, the toilet exploded, Wh- whatever the thing happened, you know, it's like, I don't want to hear about that stuff, you know, like just figure it out. But with a large yeah. multifamily, you don't have to, you know, you get so much more. Uh, it's so much more efficient versus paying some maintenance guy 50 bucks an hour to go to the place, go to Home Depot, get the part, come back, fix it, whatever, and do that with every house. It's like you have typically all the same fixtures in an apartment, the same paint colors, the same appliances, the same toilet. I mean, it's, it's like much, much more efficient and you hire the maintenance person full-time at a very significant discount. So you're not paying those crazy, you know, like normal rates, right? Yep. Yep. So
1: tell us, uh, you mentioned multifamily a couple of times. What does your portfolio look like today?
0: So we have about 2,000 multifamily units. Um, we're, we're mostly in Jacksonville, Florida. We've got a lot in Jacksonville, uh, you know, value-add multifamily stuff, usually 70, 70s, 80s build stuff. Um, we have some stuff in Atlanta, um, and then we've got one in Houston. So, uh, we, you know, the last—we've we, shifted a little bit. We, we still are doing, um, you know, multifamily. We've just uh, shifted a little bit to go less value-add and more conservative um, kind of long-term almost you know, loan assumption type of stuff. You know, you assume a, a loan that's got seven or eight years left on a, uh, on it. And and it's, you know, for the, you'll get it, you know, basically you'll know that your, your debt cost is pretty fixed and, you know, but lower
1: returns, lower projections, just to
0: stuff that's a little more conservative these days.
1: How was your portfolio let's start with the multifamily kind of weathered this, um, uh, cap rate suppression and then expansion. So what I mean by that in 19 uh, 2019, we saw cap rates starting to tick down in the uh, value add C-class space. In 2022, I was starting to see them trade at like five and a half caps. And now I'm feeling like they're expanding back to the mean. Can you talk us through like kind of how your portfolio's weathered that?
0: Yeah, yeah, so it, it's interesting, you know, if you look back historically, people that invested, you know, 2010 to, 2020 um, or team 21 early part of 22. I mean anything you could do, you could just own stuff, and for the most part, you just look like a genius because you were an owner, right? Like you didn't really have to operate super well, just as long as the cash flowed. And um, you know, about once they started really raising rates, um, you know, it, it has been much more challenging for a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, we'll have any, any sort of value add project, which um, you know, you're assuming, Hey, we're, we're increasing rent. So there's some, some kind of safety there. We've seen deals we've renovated the majority of units and the property's worth 30% less than it was when we started. Right. And that's like, how is it even possible? Right? Well, uh, you know, so some of it can be it can be challenging as far as valuations. You know, you know, even no matter how much work you do, the valuations are coming down. So we've had a couple of capital call situations. It's definitely been challenging. Um it's really kind of got me rethinking just the whole uh prepayment penalties. We had a couple of deals we sold early uh, on pre on, on fixed debt that we you know, you'll, we paid millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars in prepayment penalties. But that feels a lot better than uh, the other way of having to go ask for more, more money or potentially having a loss. So it's definitely been a learning experience, I think. Um, now, in, in reality, I think at multifamily, typically, I did talk with one investor that we have in one of our deals where there's a capital call situation, and he said uh, he's in five other capital calls in other deals that he's doing. So again, it's wow. not just like there's one; it's it's kind of industry wide. We're seeing, especially in Florida, you know, insurance has gone up literally three hundred percent. We're having increasing costs of labor and materials of 30 to 50 percent and rents have risen but not not a lot, not as much as that, right So we're seeing just even deals that were performing really well have really been pinched on the cash flow. So I think whatever you're doing, it's important to just continue to keep learning and continue to you know, okay, what can we do here differently? What are the things we can do for me? what I learned is I think fixed rate debt is uh, you know much much better. and I think if you can have a longer term fixed debt, Uh, even if your returns are lower, even if your returns are, hey, we're projecting 10 12% or whatever, there's going to be a lot more upside. I think this is actually, right now is actually a really good time to invest. It's just harder to get investors excited about it, because uh, they'll think, oh, multifamily, my multifamily must be bad, because I've had some issues with my multifamily, it's not cash flowing, whatever. Well, like you said, cap rates are coming up, deals are getting better, it's getting way better. And, you know, when you buy, your buying price is fixed, but you can always refinance later. So if rates are, you know, you're paying a 7% or 7.5%, whatever it is, you can always, as long as it cash flows, you can always refinance later. And so, uh, but the buying price, you can't, you can't change. That's a fixed thing. So, so I do think, you know, right now there's, there's definitely some opportunities. Um, It's definitely some, some growth opportunities too, just to learn and, uh, uh, yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons that the last year and a half, we've shifted a little more to go a lot more alternative stuff that is much more consistent cash flow like ATMs and car washes and oil and gas.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about ATMs, oil and gas and car washes. But before we get there, I I don't want to skip over the point of fixed debt having prepayment penalties. One of the questions I commonly get asked by um, investors is like, why did you choose floating, floating rate debt on this? Well, when you start doing the math on it, like it is literally a million dollar plus decision on not only prepayment penalties and yield to cost and things like that. But also in terms of what you can lock that in at. So um, looking back on it, I definitely think anybody who locked in and fixed rate and was able to have a more consistent debt assumption or debt position is probably doing a little bit better today. But also that was a million-dollar-plus decision probably at that time to make that decision. And don't, don't get fooled that somewhere you paid for that uh, fixed rate debt.
0: Yeah, anybody that did it, um, you know, a year or two ago, looks really smart. You know, we had some a couple of deals we did that on. It's like, oh, were are we really smart? We did this, um, but you know, it, it's it's hard. It was hard to say. You know, is is the Fed? You know, they they were so committed to low rates for it was about two years ago. They were just so, oh, we're just going to keep it zero for, and, and it just like immediately switched. So sometimes it's hard with the Fed because they give guidance and then they just like immediately, oh, now we're doing this, and it's like a complete about face. And so they're consistent until they're not, right? They kind of go a direction until they're like, oh, no, actually, we're going to do all this and we're going to move it this way. So I think, um, you know, it is important to have a plan. And I think, um, you know, it's it is it's unfortunate because you yeah, have rates rise quickly and valuations drop, and you can't, uh, there, there's a pinch there, right? There's a pinch that says, hey, you know, if you're trying to refinance a property or you're trying to, you know, basically get more money or figure out something out. And it's you're having issues, even if you're not having issues, you do all the renovations, and the value is just not there. So you have to try to figure out a way to extend your loan or put a cash in refinance or just stuff that's like, it's hard to stomach a little bit like, oh, man, but I think right now, though, because some valuations have dropped, it is like I said, it is it is a good time. So it is something that people should be interested in looking and be deploying, I think more now. The problem is when people have had any kind of a, a situation where there could be a loss it just makes us real cautious they say psychologically we remember our losses like two to three times as much as we remember an equal gain yep. so if we lose money it's oh i never want that to happen again But it's like almost it's almost traumatic so um, it's kind of like a human bias right that we're so anti uh losses but uh but anyway you know and warren buffett even said you know rule number one is don't lose money Rule number one of investing is don't lose money rule number two is don't forget about rule number one so if you can avoid losses Uh, but even that's even more case for, for fixed debt, I guess, guess as well. But, um, definitely,
1: definitely challenging to decide between those two at times. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point around now is a good time to invest when we see interest rates at seven, 8%, let's call it, um, when the fed stops deciding to raise rates and they bring rates down, or for some reason, the 10 rate, 10 year treasury goes down, then when, uh, interest rates will go down, prices will go up as well. So, um, it's kind of a, uh, uh, check, hold, and hide situation where you're stuck between two rock and a hard place. If you just had a capital call, you don't feel like the, now's a good time to invest. However, it's the reverse where you, the best time to invest is when their blood's in the street, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it, it feels counterintuitive, uh, but it, it really is. I mean, it's a contrarian investor, right? Be fearful when others are greedy, and be greedy when others are fearful. And it's not that we should be terrified in fear, or we should be greedy, but it's just being aware. Like when everyone's doing one thing, maybe it's time to kind of start backing out of that a bit, or start softening that position. And that when no one's doing something, maybe oh, maybe it's time to jump in. So one example of this is I, when oil crashed to minus thirty-eight dollars a barrel. <laughs> Uh, I was trying to, think, how do I take advantage of this? whatever? And so I got into, I got into like, uh, like some ETFs and different things. And I like doubled or triple my money within, you know, within a year, it was great, but I didn't hit that the perfect bottom or the perfect top, but like, I was really happy that I got in. So, but it's just, you know, again, sometimes we think things are never going to change, but they continually change. And so, um, it's the idea of finding something that's a little out of favor. And I think right now multifamily has gone from being super in favor to being a little bit out of favor. So that's
1: actually yep. an attractive quality. Agreed. Agreed. So you mentioned alternatives to the alternative investing, such as ATM car washes and oil and gas. Um, Specifically, I want to talk about ATMs because I've never had somebody on the show to talk through ATMs. It is something that I continue to evaluate huge tax benefits, great cash flow, all those sorts of things. But talk talk to us a little bit about this space and why you were interested in that.
0: Yeah. So it's really interesting. I just had a call earlier today and this commonly happens. And they're like, you know, I don't, does anybody use ATMs? I haven't used an ATM in 10 years where I haven't paid for a fee. And it's, and it's, so it's just, it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because the people who invest in ATM machine funds or invest with us never use ATMs and pay a fee. Right. But statistically the FDIC said that 4.5% of all households in the US, this was in 2021, 4.5% of households, not a single person in the house has a bank account, or in the household has a bank Crazy. account. And then about 10% of Americans overall, they, they, 10% of Americans do not have a bank account. So these people are using cash, people get you know paid cash on the table, unemployment benefits now come on debit cards, people are using prepaid debit cards, they're sending money international, they're doing all this stuff. So there's actually quite a few people operating in cash. So we've seen uh, you just consistently around a 4%, a little over 4% growth in the number of ATM transactions annually, which is kind of amazing, right, to see that kind of growth, just continually, and the projection is that it's going to continue to grow. And so, you know, for all this currency they've created as well. So uh, it is interesting to see. And um, yeah, I mean, again, what I like, what I like about the investment that we're involved with, is that it's the most consistent cash flow deal that I've seen. Now, every investment has risks. Obviously the risk is, you know, do people stop using cash or is there an operational issue, whatever. Well, in over 11 years of operating the partner which that we're working with, which is the fourth largest operator of ATMs and machines in the country, they haven't missed or reduced a single preferred return monthly payment. So uh, just for example, this is an example, not a specific offering or anything, but 100K invested uh, has returned around 2100 a month, starting month four after the investment and, and ret- pays out for 84 months, and then it ends, right? So it's kind of this idea that like, you're just getting consistent cash flow, and it's, it's a mix of principal and interest. And then at the end, the investment just kind of ends, there's no big lump sum at the end, which makes it different than multifamily. But the fact is, you get paid back so quickly, within a couple of years, you can get a significant portion of your money back and go reinvest, right? So that's kind of the cool thing is having cash flow investments that are predictable. And as predictable as multifamily has been, um, usually it takes a little while to get going. And then lately, it's been like, man, it's been hard to find deals that actually cash flow consistently right because of the different costs like we mentioned that, that talked about so so that's cool the other thing is that it has 100 percent depreciation and the depreciation is actually better than real estate depreciation so what i mean by that is uh when you have a multifamily deal you have you know 25 you know 27 and a half years whatever the schedule and you bring it forward to year one you get all this depreciation but you still have to recapture Whatever years you didn't use after, whenever you sell in year five or whatever it is. well, with with these ATMs, it's a five-year uh, depreciation schedule that goes to zero, so you never have to recapture. So we've had uh, several investors that have over a million dollars invested each, just because they can't find anything like that that has that type of depreciation with that kind of cash flow, and it's been really ideal. So uh, this year it's eighty percent year one, and then the twenty percent the the remaining couple of years. But uh, again, yeah, there's a lot of directions we could go with that, but that's kind of a quick overview.
1: Yeah. So some of these investments that I've looked at, essentially, you're earning your capital back within the first four years, and then it pays out for an additional three years, three years four yeah, years, something, three years. Yeah, sure. So after that, it's just all upside. And then to your point, like you're getting $80,000, let's call it, of depreciation on a 100, $100,000 investment in year one that you can allocate across your portfolio, across different cap gains or things like that. Um, I will throw an asterisk here. Neither of us, Bronson or myself, are CPAs. We're not your CPA. Don't sue us. But ultimately, that's a pretty strong uh, argument for cash flow and strong depreciation. Hey fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you would like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now, back to the show.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's. at the end of the day, I mean, I realized this is a kind of a cool strategy you know, when I was working medical sales, I was making 200K a year and it was great, but I was, you know, still paying 50K in taxes, right? So I was making maybe 150. Uh, but when I, you know, I realized if I was able to use these tax incentives, which, you know, there's something called the real estate professional or RE, REPS status that the, um, you know, the IRS allows for, I could make 150 and I could basically keep the same amount of money. Keep it. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of amazing. So I realized like, wow, like there are actually ways that... It's 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 kind of about using these things. People call them loopholes, but I call them incentives because you know when the government they have an agenda. They need to provide enough uh, energy to people. That's why there's some incentives in oil and gas. They need to provide housing, and when the government provides housing they don't do a good job. Think about like government projects, right? Nobody wants to live in the hood in a government project, or that's what they do. And government housing is, that's typically what they look like. So they like these private partnerships, because they know they'll get a better result. And so they give incentives to people who individuals who invest or operate those deals. And so um, I, I'm really passionate about I actually got a whole chapter in my book about uh, reducing taxes potentially to zero, again, just educational, I'm not a, a
1: giving any personal advice, but just sharing a little bit of my story and other people's stories. Yeah, that it literally changed my financial life when I realized that the tax and tax code in America is not made to drive revenue. It's made to incentivize the private individual to go do something that the government wants done. And mm-hmm. the three areas that those are for me are housing, energy, and agriculture. If you do something in the space, if you house a population, if you give energy to the population, or if you feed the population, chances are you're going to get a pretty big tax benefit along the way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it it really is. uh, And and, and Tom Wheelwright, my friend, he talks about this in some of his books where tax-free wealth and some of these books. It really works pretty much the same in every country of the world, the whole like cash flow quadrant, like how much you pay, if you're an employee, then you'll pay typically up to 40% ish tax, or maybe a little more but around that. If you're a high, like a uh, self employed or a physician, you're up 50 60%. And if you're a business owner, it's usually around 20%. because You get a bunch of write offs. And then if you're an investor, you pay zero. And it's just it's got kind of, no matter what country of the world, it's kind of that it always works out. Um, and it's just because of that reason is that you know, it's not like they're, everybody's colluding around the world. It's just that no, for these things to work, and if the government has incentives, they want to. They, they have to create ways that create incentives for investors. So people, some people will get upset about anything else. Not, it's not fair. And why do they do that? Or whatever. It's like, well, you know, if you want to change that, you can just get aligned with the. You know, I, I worked with physicians for years. They were paying fifty, sixty percent taxes. You know, after everything, and I was like you know, you have, you have some, there's some options there. You know, there's some, I've seen people, their spouse becomes a real estate professional or they go part time. And even if they worked half time and did some real estate stuff, they could probably keep the same amount of money. So it's kind of wild, you know, how this, yeah. uh, how this all works.
1: Yeah. And step one would be to run for Congress. I mean, at the end of the day, like the, the playbook is the playbook. Um, I didn't write the rules. I can disagree with how they're written, but if I want to change it, then there's one option I can do. And that's go, go to Congress and change it myself.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's but you know, even if you change it, it's like, this is how I mean, if it exists in almost every country in the world, then you know, it may not just be a go to Congress thing. It's like, how do you have a productive society? You know, it's like, okay, we've got to create things that are important. And energy
1: and housing are those are two very, very important things for sure. Yep. Yeah. So you mentioned that at the beginning of the show that you've talked with over a hundred and uh, I'm sorry, 1500 investors, which is quite a lot. Um, I would love to learn from you. Talk to us what you've learned from those conversations. What are some of the gotchas that first time investors should be asking, but don't ask? What do you like when investors ask you as the operator? Talk us through that.
0: Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's, you know, there's. I think when I get on the phone with someone, um, it's just interesting because people come from all different you know backgrounds and levels of experience. So some people are like never done anything except for stocks. They've got a money person. I was a guy that I talked to, a physician who had his own practice and he had five million dollars net worth and he'd only done stocks. He had his money person and he'd never done anything outside of that. So that's gonna be a much more basic conversation of how syndication works. And here's, you know, when I first heard about syndication, I was like, is this some sort of crime thing? Like, like a syndicate crime thing, or, or like a syndicated TV show, I just didn't even know the term, it was so different. Um, but it, so anyway, it's just kind of depending who's on the phone, now, if somebody gets on and they've done 20 passive deals, and they're going gonna to talk about cap rate, you know, reversions and conservative metrics and fixed rate versus, you know, bridge debt, and you're just gonna have a whole different conversation. So everybody has different things. But I think the biggest things, uh, the commonalities for a lot of these people, um, A lot of them are interested in reducing taxes or finding ways to shelter taxes. These people are, you know, I actually kind of evaluated what's the average net worth that I've spoken with. It's around 2 million, we've had some that have, you know, north of 10, 20, 30 million, but uh, a lot of people are, you know, high net worth, really trying to figure out, hey, how do I grow this? What can I do that would be beneficial um, to grow my wealth uh, outside of Wall Street? So that's a big one. And then, you know, again, a lot of these people have more uh, money than they have time right there's a, there's a, a desire to uh, really try to become more passive and so like I mentioned a lot of people own a house or two and they're like this just doesn't gonna work to get me where I want to go like if I have a business if I sell my business I'll make some money but how am I gonna like actually generate cash flow right and that's the thing people I think that skill if you if you knew you could invest in something and get around 10 15 percent per year which is way higher than what the stock market and other things promise like if you could just consistently do that, then you'd be in great shape, or you wouldn't actually need that much money to be able to survive on, right? And that's why my book uh, "Fire Yourself," which is it's just coming out shortly, um, it's, it's the subtitle is replace your working income with passive income in three years or less, right? So how do you do that? How do you create that process? So all those calls kind of culminated really in the book of just a path of why Wall Street isn't working uh, what passive income really is and what are some options that are out there and how do you vet a deal you know how do you vet an operator if you've never done this before how do you, you know I don't want to lose money so how do I avoid that right and so we have a whole uh, you know a whole section on that as well
1: yeah talk to us a little bit about how you vet a deal so as an operator um, you have your I, I'm sorry as a passive investor I'm sure you have your procedures that you walk through to kind of vet a team an operator, and operator in a deal talk us through that
0: yeah, so uh, I, I have a actually there's like a graphic I use. It's like a like a funnel. So you have like at the top, you have the market, you've got below that the deal and at the bottom you have, I'm um, sorry, you have the market, you've got the operator, and then you got the deal. So a lot of people would say, oh, you start with the operator. I was like no, I like to start with the market because whatever the market is, if you're in the right market and you can do a lot of things wrong, and you'll still be okay because the rising tide will raise all ships. So we look at that, like, what's the ATM market look like? What does the multi, the workforce housing in Jacksonville, Florida, look like? Right? Is the population growing? Is the income growing? Rents growing? What what's the landlord rights? All these we look at all these things to kind of determine what is the market landscape look like. So it exists in every asset, not just multifamily, but you know different markets, different types of, you know, car washes different things. So we look at that. And then we try to make an assessment, you know, is it growing? What's the trend here? Are we in the right market? If it's a shrinking market, if it's there's some real issues with doing it, that's, again, why we don't buy in California, because it's very difficult to do what you want with your property in California, right? You can somebody can squat for a year. There's actually a story of a woman who went into yeah, an Airbnb and you saw this, yeah, in Beverly Hills yeah. in some mansion and she paid, I think she was there one night and then she's been there for like 2 years and the person cannot get rid of her like literally because of all these little loopholes. So, you know, we want to know we can do what we want with our property. So, The market is the first thing. Second thing is that really the operator or the team, like who is the team? What's their experience? What's their background? What are their values? I used to think we all value the same things. A lot of people want to raise money, and they never want to talk to investors again. And I'm like, that's not, you know, we want to have a relationship with our investors. So we talk about our values and where we're at, and you want to make sure those things align. Um, And then, you know, what is the specific deal? And does that deal match up with your specific goals and what you want? And also, does the deal match the operator? If the operator has been great in Atlanta, and they've done a certain thing is this one a whole new market with a new property manager or a new type of asset doesn't mean you won't do it, you really want to make sure that you understand it. And then kind of at the bottom of that with the deal, it's like, there's typically, you know, one or two, you understand how you're going to make money with this deal, you understand how you're going to make money. And what's the one or two primary ways that you could lose money? And if you don't understand that, then you probably don't understand the deal well enough as a passive investor or as a partner. So it's important to, to really think about that. Uh, maybe study more. And also, I ask when I have phone calls, you know, to get on somebody's list, I'll ask them, "Hey, what do you what do you think is the primary risk of this deal?" And if they're like, "Oh, there's no really no, this is so safe, secure, whatever," it's like, "Well, then run," because like they don't you know, they haven't thought it through or they're not being honest, right? So, but uh, and sometimes they will say something different than what I thought. I'll think it's this, and they'll be like, "Oh, I think it's this," and i will be like, "Oh, that's I didn't really think about that." But again, you're trying to get a handle on both what is the upside and what's my downside here. So, but they actually do come to you typically in reverse order, right? You'll get the deal first, then you say, hold on, let me go back here, but what is the market? What is the, who's the operator, whatever, and does this fit my own parameters? And so it's kind of a, a back and forth between those three things, but I think, um, you know, market first, then the operator,
1: then the deal. Yeah, two things I wanna highlight from that is one, I always like the market too. A good market can save a bad deal. A good deal cannot save a bad market, in my opinion. Um, And two, uh, I'm on a big – this is conservatively underwritten bashing streak right now. Every operator I've ever met in my life (laughs) says, boy, we are ultra-conservative in our underwriting. And the real answer is maybe in some areas, but in some areas you're risk-on. And what I want to know is where are you taking that risk and then how are you mitigating that risk if that were to uh, come to fruition? So.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, nobody walks around and says, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's an aggressive, aggressive deal. People. They say like 85% of people describe themselves as above average in their driving skills. And it's like, yeah. well, we know that's not even possible. Like you can't, make, you right. have that many people, but right. it's the same, no offer is going to be like, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of mediocre in my underwriting here. Like, it's just really not, it's kind of shaky, yeah. but you know, you should invest anyway. <laughs> it's like, nobody yeah, wants to yeah. That, right? boy, it's if like, one
1: thing goes wrong, this deal blows up, but I think it's a good deal. Yeah, it, it is kind of
0: like a, a word though. That's kind of a tr- like if, if people hear it, they're looking for oh, it's they use the word conservative, so they're they're thinking about what I should be, you know, like and and I get it, yeah. like and we use it too, but it's also like, you know, you can say whatever you want to say, but like show me in the you know what is the rent growth assumption or what these days like what do you what do you how is this conservative, you know? And I found great deals. I used to think. You know, when I was first starting out doing this, it was like, oh, you know, if, if 15% in Atlanta is, is good, maybe if a 17% return, that's even better, right? But I've realized experienced yeah. investors, they'd rather have like a 12% projected return. And like, you know, you say, hey, here's all the things that we didn't even put in the underwriting that like are potential upsides that we think we're going to get. But we just didn't want to put it in there because we wanted to be more conservative. Right? And that's like, oh, that feels yeah. really good, right? Because then you're like, you've set a base expectation. And then you're like kind of building upon that. And so it's a different way of doing it. But I think I I really like deals like that.
1: Yeah, I invested with an operator in 2021. um, And we're selling that deal is selling uh, in November and the IRR is like 10.8%. And I am ecstatic with that deal right now because it had 3.5 floating rate debt when we bought it. And now it's at like 5.8 or something like that, 5.75. Um, so, still not in like danger zone, but ultimately, yeah. like if we're, we are flipping a profit in two years, I'm okay getting my, my money back with some friends and the tax benefits I got along the way and redeploying that somewhere else and let's go at it again. What I don't want to be in is sorry, the bank is taking back this asset and you're not getting any back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, how just even the whole perspective has changed in the last couple of years. I remember I had, I've had so yeah. many calls the last few years, but like, you know, it's it for a while it was like, Oh, this, this, I don't know. You know, you're at, you're only at 14% IRR 15. That's a little too low for, you know, I'm looking for something. little, it's like, but now it's like, you're, I mean, and it's true. Like, Hey, I just want to get my money back. I just want to make sure things are going to be okay. Or is my, you know, yeah. capital secure. And it's just interesting how expectations and things change when the market changes. And you know i just think it's important to be flexible and also um you know there's lot other things we cannot um like project but that's why i think i've learned to just honestly through this some of the some of the floating rate stuff um i i'm going to be very leery to get into more any more floating rate stuff in the future just because uh, i mean there's there is a place for it and there is a place to to use it and there's a place for it. construction loans are pretty much all floating rate and there's a lot of value add stuff. You, you know, you do a lot of that, but, um, having a property that's stabilized enough to have fixed rate debt and just kind of do it slowly over time. Some of the value add stuff. Um, it it seems attractive because it protects your principal, you know?
1: Yep. Yep. Well, Bronson, fantastic conversation. I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift?
0: Um, well, see, a great book I read, um, well, I'll give two books, uh, well, I gave a bunch, I read a lot of books, but um, the, there's a great book called Never Split the Difference, which is by Chris Voss, just on negotiating, I think that's a great book, there's a, a book on the personal side, that's called The Gifts of Imperfection, by Brené Brown, and that's actually probably my favorite book of all time, and it's just talking through how do you live a wholehearted life? How do you own your story? How do you work through shame? How do you just things that like becoming a, a more well-rounded person? I think so. That a couple of great books that I've read. I'm reading one right now called Breath by uh, James Nestor, just talking about the power of breathing correctly. And I mean, there's I mean, there's I read a ton, so I'm a big nerd.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've got uh, a lot of those books that you mentioned. Breathe, Never Spoke the Difference, all that behind me, so. Yeah. Our second one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, there's probably a lot. The one that comes to mind is,
0: uh, to grow your wealth. The two things that will get you there are networking and education. Um, and they sound not super sexy, but it's just so true. You know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So getting in the rooms with people that are next level. So you can go to the next level and just educating yourself on as much as you can and learn as much as you can. Um, so yeah, I almost look at that. Like, you know, you're a big fitness guy as well. It's almost like physical fitness, right? Like getting your mental fitness in. So those are, I
1: think probably those are the best advice I've received. Yeah, the best way to grow your wealth is through networking and education. I have never heard that. But uh, now when I look back on my life, I've always had the education piece and I I skipped the networking piece. And if I had like to point to the biggest mistake I made over the past seven years that I've been in the space is networking. It was really only the past two years that I've tried to get out there and like make connections. And yeah, so I love that piece of advice. Yeah, there's a quote. Third, quick, there's
0: there's a quick, There's a quote that says You're, you'll be the same five years from now, except for the books you read and the people you meet. People you meet. Yeah, and I think it's yep. so true.
1: Yep. Our third one is: What are you most proud of in your life?
0: Uh most proud of being a dad. I have an awesome ten-year-old daughter, and I you know try to be the best dad I can, and just just so proud of being a dad, being her dad. Yeah, just
1: one. Just one. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Nice. Our fourth and final one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why?
0: Oh, man, there's so many people. Um, I think I'd like to have a bowl of Jesus. I'm just a big Jesus guy, so I think that'd be awesome to just – and I don't think any ice cream was around when Jesus was around. So that would be awesome to, like, you know, experience ice cream with Jesus.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, he might have been able to make some, though, right? Yeah, he could probably just – yeah, if he could turn water to wine, like, oh, I'll make some ice cream here, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Bronson, well, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about you, or connect, where is the best place we could point them? So yeah,
0: the best place, my website, bronsonequity.com. I have my ebook as a free download there, some strategies in using inflation to your advantage. Um, Also, I have my new book, which is behind me here called Fire Yourself, that's a full length book on Amazon. Uh, Like I mentioned, replace your working income with passive income in three years or less, that's at Amazon, so you can check that out, called Fire Yourself.
1: Awesome. We will link those in the show notes. And then Bronson, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Matt. Appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.